You're listening to the Dungeons, Dragons, and Psychology Podcast. How would you respond if I asked you the question, how do you win at Dungeons and Dragons or any other tabletop role-playing game? You might say that you can win by defeating an encounter or finishing an adventure, or you might say that you could win at character creation by making the most effective character in the party. My name is Robert Walker author of Session Zero, the DMG to writing great campaigns in any system. And this is my show where I teach collaborative storytellers how to create memorable campaigns using psychology. And today we are going to focus on what it means to win at D&D. So let's go ahead and meet our guests and start talking about some of the ways we have uncovered that winning happens in tabletop role-playing games. I'm Nate Pohl. I am professionally a technical director for Boise State University. Uh, My background is in theater, and I have worked in theater for nearly 20 years. I have been playing role-playing games for that entire time, most of it with Rob, actually. Hi, I'm Chris Pohl, brother to Nate Pohl. I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons since high school. I've been playing computer games before that. Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, Throne of Ball, Diablo, Diablo 2. I am professionally a toxicologist with a medical device company, and I love D&D, and I love games. Okay, so today we are talking about winning Dungeons & Dragons, or winning your TTRPG. Definitely, as we're discussing this concept before we started recording, we're finding out how many different things that can actually mean. There's a lot of ideas that we've already had just in a couple minutes of talking about this topic. But really, we want to distill down the ideas for the listeners and have them figure out what does it mean when we're talking about winning at D&D. And I think we've come up with kind of two basic things that it means. Go ahead, Nate. Why don't you share what we've talked about on that? Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think at its base level, it's kind of the goal of every game is to sort of win the game by figuring out whatever sort of mystery is involved in the story and and sort of beating whatever big bad evil guy is causing whatever evil that the party is trying to solve. And so that that is sort of I think maybe the essence of what good winning looks like if if I can put that term to use. On the other hand, I think maybe the other version of winning is less to do with the story that the DM has come up with and that the players are sort of collectively trying to tell and has maybe more to do with an individual player trying to demonstrate mastery of the game in some way by having a character that works more effectively than any of the other characters at the table. This usually gets referred to in some form as power gaming or something of the like. Hmm. Yeah, the thought just occurred to me that there can be a third type of winning, which I think we've kind of experienced in a group once or twice. Uh, the ability to prove a point. Mm. And honestly, those games mm. are a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. You do one or two sessions and it's done because the point's either been proven or disproven. You know, that's a very good point. Actually, I hadn't even thought about that one, but we have a pretty concrete example of that. I remember there was a conversation that one of our DMs had with us. And I, I think the offhand comment that he had made was, you can't have an effective party that's just wizards. And 
you, me, and Nate all said, challenge accepted. And, uh, <laughs> and we ended up creating oh, yeah. these, uh, these three red wizards of Thay that threw down the gauntlet and ended up defeating something like eight challenge ratings above our level. I believe that is correct. Yeah. It was, it was either six or eight. Yeah. And just like, but, but did it dramatically. Oh, decisively. And you're right. That game lasted two or three sessions uh, to the point where he was basically like, okay, there's nothing I'm throwing at you that has any effect. You guys won that game. (laughs) And I think that's a good point in terms of, I think power gaming is a term that has a lot of negative connotations sometimes. And, and when we talk about maybe winning character creation, as opposed to winning the actual game that you are collectively playing, that can be very distracting and very negative in a lot of contexts, but it doesn't have to be. You can set up games that are designed to sort of exhibit individual players' prowess at character creation. Um, And as long as everybody comes into it on the same page and knows what they're participating in, I think it can be a very fun, healthy way to play Mm D&D. It all comes down to communication beforehand. I agree. Yeah, and having everyone on the same page instead of having you know, one person looking for a story, one person looking for power gaming, one person just, you know, there to hang out, like having everyone on the same page to be like, here's the expectation for the game. And then also being okay, you know, if it is this kind of flash in the pan type of game, be okay when it's over because right. it honestly can't last long. It's too hot a fire. That is true. So we, we already gave a pretty good example for winning in terms of proving a point. But let's talk about the other two because I think as as Nate mentioned, th- these are the two that really uh, they can make or break a game. Yeah, if you're trying to prove a point, it might be a f- really quick game, two sessions, and your point is proven, and then, okay, let's move on and get back to an actual story. But if you're with a group that's trying to tell a story and have a long-running campaign, yet you have one or two players who is trying to win the character build wars and power game and show off what they can put together with the rule system and be better than everybody else. And that's the whole point of them playing. You're definitely going to have issues in telling that story. For sure. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the problems that really come from that is when you power game a character, the point of your character is to show off, is to show off their prowess. And that is very distracting from the, the concept of a party. When it's one person and it's their show, there's not a party. It's the me and T. <laughs> it kind of that main character syndrome is taking place. Yeah. Well, and as soon as you have one main character at the table, all of a sudden everybody else becomes secondary characters. That's true. Not very helpful in a collaborative storytelling game. So yeah. let's try and think of a couple of examples uh, that fit into each of these. I mean, I, the power gaming one is is pretty simple, but I think that can also happen in, in a couple of different ways because it doesn't necessarily have to happen on the character sheet. I've also seen it happen in terms of knowledge of the rules is another way I think that same sort of winning can take place. Being able to cite back rules to the DM to garner favor or get your character to do the things you want to do by following the rules as they're written in the book, I think that can have the same effect. 
It's true. And I, and I, as much as I love the more complex system that Pathfinder has put together sort of off of D&D's 3.5, it lends itself a little bit more to that. Right. Um, because the more complex the rule system, the harder it is to know how all of the rules interrelate. Right. Well, I think you run into that in, in 3.5 and, and third edition, any of those systems that have supplement after supplement after supplement that are official, you're always adding more rules and you can't think, of every way that it's going to, you know, this new feed is going to interact with all the other feeds that existed before it. But a clever rules lawyer can certainly find the loopholes in the way that things work together and make a pretty impressive character off of those rules. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I think a lot of it comes down to how that character gets played. Because if you take the most effective character in the history of D&D characters, but you play it in a way that is very cooperative, that doesn't dominate combat, that doesn't dominate anything that it touches, then it can be a very effective character in a collaborative sense. Right. I think it, it just becomes easier for the player to sort of go off the rails a little bit because the numbers are there. So just to make sure I understand what you're saying, Nate, it's essentially almost less about the numbers on the character and how you make the build. It's the intention of the player behind the character. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it is. It is. It does come down to intention a lot. I think maybe it can be sometimes a little bit of a slippery slope in terms of Mm. as soon as you get something you care about in game that because you have the numbers, it becomes a lot easier for you to chase that. And then before you know it, suddenly everything is focused around you mm-hmm. and what your character wants. Yeah, that's a very good point. But I, I I think you do bring up a good point there. I don't think that there is any circumstance in which the numbers on a page matter if the player who is holding that page comes to the table and wants to be collaborative and not dominating the, the session. And I think I've had this argument with people inside and outside of our group a few times is that so many times we've gotten into arguments over um, what the the stat generation method is <laughs> is going to be used. And I know, I know that's kind of a running argument in our group. I've talked about it on the show a lot. Some of us prefer the roll of the dice. Some of us prefer stat arrays or point buys. However, our, I guess my argument has kind of always been when it comes down to it, it doesn't really matter. Like the story is what is you know, important to me. And I like the randomness that comes with stat rolls because it forces you to to compensate for weaknesses and forces you to play with things that you wouldn't get in the other methods, um, like having a four in a stat that now all of a sudden you have some sort of serious drastic setback that you have to learn to deal with. And, and it makes really interesting role play. Do you think that the stat method really plays much into the ability to to power game to try and win a game? Or do you think it's more rules-based? Is it a balance? I, I think that a true inveterate power gamer will always find a way to min-max. I think the stats just make it easier to do so sometimes. Yeah. Be- because, I mean, if you're rolling stats, then maybe... They don't come into it with a character build in mind, but they go and find a character build that those stats really work for. Yeah. With a point by system, they come in knowing exactly how they're going to distribute their stats to get the most effective character. I, truly, in the end, I mean, it, I don't think it changes much. What really matters is the attitude that comes in with the player. 
So can I ask a question? It almost is sounding like winning is less about having the most powerful character. It almost sounds like it's more about controlling the situation than other people have control of the situation. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I think in the end, it all comes down to force a little bit. And it's it's about whoever has the force, whether it's force of numbers, force of personality, force of whatever, to sort of direct the game in the direction that they want to go at the expense of the direction that everybody else wants the game to go. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I was thinking about a specific example. Um, there was one time I had a paladin where we had captured a goblin. We were trying to get information from him. I was refusing torture. And someone just came up and shanked the goblin in the back when I told him, you know, you will go to jail, but you will not be killed. And so it's almost like someone else was forcing my hand with my paladin oath at that point because Mm -hmm. my oath had been broken. I think that's an example of, you know, maybe this power game aspect that we're talking about in terms of taking control of the game at the expense of the party. But, you know, that, you know, how that leads into winning is, you know, almost it's about having the attention focused on them, be it through being a powerful character, be it through depriving other people of choices, or be it through, I'm just going to do what I want and y'all can deal with it. But that's almost where it it seems like this winning idea is coming from, from like a power game perspective. Yeah, I think think you're right. I think that would fall into this category. It, It is sort of controlling the narrative of the game by one person and definitely not playing collaboratively. Um, But we've talked a lot about ways that a player can try and win the narrative or win the game as a power gamer just for the betterment of themselves. Let's shift and focus and talk a little bit about what does it look like when you are having a collaborative story of players trying to win the story or be victorious in their goals, because that is a very different way of winning the game. And I think it's definitely, almost without question, a, a more conducive to having a good time absolutely it's way more satisfying to win as a group in in my opinion and and i think that the key comes down to using whatever character you have built whether it's super optimized or whether it's thrown together it's about what you support as a character and if you are supporting the goals of the other players then you are sort of supporting the group as a whole and 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 you're not going off and doing your own thing or you're not trying to force what you want to happen on the situation. If you go into, say, a combat and you go in with the goal of making another character as effective as possible, you're going to make them look good and they are probably going to have more fun. So even if you are power gamed out the max, if you do it with the goal of making other people look good, mm. it's more likely to work out. And the effect that it will have on their opinion of your character is going to be entirely the opposite of using that power game to just focus the story on yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Confession time, I guess. I, I tend a little bit towards the power game end of things myself. I, I enjoy the numbers. I like putting together very effective characters, and I like those game systems that do tend to have a little bit more content so that abilities can interact in unexpected ways to yeah. sort of generate effectiveness. I, I enjoy that process, but I think that that process is at its most 
beneficial to the game when you are using it in support of other players rather than to get done whatever you have personally as an agenda. Well, I think you've done a very good job of creating characters that even though the numbers might be on your side or the build that you've used is very effective, you generally do focus on how can I make this build for the party? I mean, you, you, Warweaver is one of the ones that I've, I've seen you play very effectively. In our current game right now, you're a paladin, but you're a paladin, basically a paladin of, of defense. You're making all the rest of your party better rather than standing up and, and delivering the hits yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in fact, I, I created this character with the goal of, and I've mostly held to it, of hardly ever making an attack roll. Um, because the character is sort of built around making all of the other members of the party more effective. Right. And I have a lot of fun doing that um, because I get to feed both my collaborative side and the sort of power gamer in me. Right. Yeah. Do you have any examples from from your stories, Chris, that you can think of that collaboration worked really, really well or maybe times where it didn't? I know we all have both, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, one example I'm thinking of, it's almost less about collaboration and it was about the party letting the spotlight shine on everybody in their own turn okay. which i thought was fascinating this is one of the first games that we played and i think you were a druid rob nate you were a barbarian i was uh, a mystic surge hmm. i think and i remember there were certain times when Nate, you would like fly into a rage and like bust through a wall with I don't know, like something like a 40 strength. And like we would all sit back and let you have that moment. Mm. And then there were times, Rob, when like you would shape shift and do something that was completely unexpected. And everyone would just be like, let's see what he does. Let's give him, I don't know, half hour to just play this out and see what happens. And like for myself, I remember, you know, you guys would let me go on like little adventures every once in a while, like for try to find some mystic knowledge or something, letting everybody have their turn. Mm. I think kind of what you're saying, Nate, is you let the focus be on other right. people. And it doesn't mean that the focus has to be on everyone else the whole time. But to be able to share that is really where that camaraderie comes in. And, you know, you have times where, like you're saying, like you can beef each other up. And there are times when you can have your own little story and letting that spotlight shine on each person in its turn is that's what really made that game a fun game. for me. Yeah, I remember that game. That was a lot of fun. I believe uh, Connor was in that game, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, he he ended up playing Crimson. He was a a female, a female bard and his character, my character ended up getting married at some point. It was a really interesting game. It had some very unique um, stories in it. But you're very right in talking about that game because it did have moments every person in that game had moments that they were allowed to explore what their character wanted to do and they were supported by the rest of the people at the table and i think that's the real key takeaway from this is because nobody was out there to just try and win for themselves all of our victories were victories that were a part of our greater victory as as a team Mm -hmm. If yeah. I remember right, I think that was actually one of our first long-running games, and I have a feeling that that attitude is the reason why that one succeeded, where we had so many games before that that were no more than three or four sessions. Yeah, and I, and I think one big piece that we haven't really talked about here yet, but I, it plays into it very well, is from the DM's perspective, having a group of people who are winning collaboratively means that they're winning at the story that you're trying to tell. Whereas a person who's trying to just win the character build wars, 
they're not interested in the story. So when you go into it in that collaborative mode and everybody at the table's in that collaborative mode, you're going to have a much better narrative than the other way around. And it's going to be better for everyone at the table, DM included. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking, um, Chris, about what you said back at the beginning of this in terms of delineating out the different styles of, of players. And I think one of the ways that this same sort of lack of cooperation can show up that has nothing to do with sort of winning the character build, but people who tend to be way more uh, roleplay focused sometimes get so caught up in trying to have these very, let me call them exotic sort of conversations where they get to sort of dominate in some way a conversation or create something that is very unusual. Hmm. Um, And I think that that can sort of end up with a lot of the same consequences where in trying to craft that conversation, that interaction, you end up sort of so pulling focus that it derails everything that is sort of going on around you. So Hmm. just because you have a focus on storytelling rather than numbers does not necessarily make you a good collaborative storyteller. Yeah, that's a good point. It is something that yeah. you need to just have the entire mindset needs to be on collaboration, whether or not the character sheet's involved at all. Right. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on to tricks of the trade. Okay, so today for tricks of the trade, we're going to talk about ways, and um, we're going to use some some video gaming terminology here. But ways to have the players focus on players versus the environment or the story that you're trying to tell, rather than winning by player versus player who has the better character build. I think that probably one of the easiest ways to encourage players to get back to a more collaborative form of storytelling is by not giving them the situations that their characters uh, are focused on. And so if that means that you have a character that is very combat, heavy sort of uh, power gamer focused have a couple of sessions that there is no combat and use that to sort of encourage them to get involved in the sort of more narrative storyline um that the party is engaged in and that once they are sort of invested in that storyline reintroducing combat allows them to sort of experience what they want in a it lets them experience what they want, but it encourages them to be involved in the storyline so that hopefully they can find a method of sort of doing both. That's a very good point, Nate. Thank you. I think for myself, one suggestion that I would make would be if you're going to be telling a story that is very narrative based, make sure that prior to starting this that game, you do have a really good quality session zero. And you get an idea in terms of character backstories about what pieces of the story are going to be really important to the characters so that they can go into it already kind of thinking about how their character is tied to the narrative and possibly even how they're tied to the other characters. Set the framework by giving them them that opportunity to see how they're tied to everyone else rather than just coming into it with a character sheet with numbers on it where they might not be considering everybody else's feelings or how they're interacting or how they're tied to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think another thing you can do instead of from the GM side, from the player side, is kind of take what Nate said in making your character indispensable to other characters. At that point, it really lends to you need to have cooperation. You want your character to be powerful? Well, guess what? You need someone else to be even more powerful. 
and really rely on that dynamic of cooperation builds more power than just try to rely on, you know, kind of mitigating the situation so that the, the character feels like they have to branch out more. Yeah. Excellent point. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. I'm going to have Nate and Chris on again in a couple of weeks. So they will be back with me. We're going to be talking about what was our topic that we were going into? Uh, the power yes, of three. The power of three. That should be a lot of fun. Actually, we're going to be seeing that in two weeks from today. So tune in. Let's head over to our knowledge check. For today's knowledge check, we're going to look at an article called The Psychology of Ongoing Excellence, an NCAA coach's perspective on winning consecutive multiple national championships. And this comes out of the Journal of Sports Psychology in Action and was uh, produced by David Eukelson from an interview he did with Russ Rose. Russ Rose was the women's volleyball coach at Penn State, and he won four consecutive national championships, which is, suffice to say, pretty much unheard of. But the reason that I wanted to focus on this article for a tabletop role-playing game podcast is because of the applicability of his coaching philosophy to this idea that we're talking about in winning. He mentions three things that we have sort of been talking about already today, and those are role clarity, role acceptance, and team synergy. So according to Coach Rose, everyone on the team had something special and unique that they contributed to that team. This is the role that we're talking about here, and this is very much what we have been discussing in our conversation today, talking about finding the way your character fits the role it's supposed to play on the team that it's on, the group of adventurers that it's part of. So Rose explains that team productivity is not only based on the performance of the individual, but the contributions and synergy that all of the members have. So when he selected members to be on his team, each year, he wasn't trying to find star athletes. He was trying to find the best athletes that fit the role that was needed to make a synergistic team. The other part of this, then, is role acceptance. That means that each person on the team, each person in your adventuring party, needs to accept the role that they are going to be playing. For example, your wizard needs to understand the role that it's going to play as a wizard rather than try and bridge the gaps and be the best at everything at the table. They need to accept the role that makes them the most synergistic to the team. There is one other thing that Coach Russ mentions during this interview that I think is equally applicable to what we've been talking about today, and that is after the team has synergized, after everyone has accepted their role and has started to play their part, there is one other thing that leads to the success of a team, and that is unity of purpose. Everyone needs to be on the same page, moving in the same direction, striving for the same goal. 
We mentioned that earlier in talking about how a game works more functionally if everyone is working on the, is interested in the same things and moving in the same direction. So it's the same in sports as it is here in tabletop role playing games, and I think you can see that uh, correlation if you've ever watched the uh, first episode of Stranger Things season four, where they show the connections and the similarities between winning a sports uh, championship and winning your D&D campaign. It's a really incredible scene and just kind of shows how the connections and the elation that is experienced by the participants is the same regardless of what your sport or game of choice is. That is it for today, my cyclothids. Next week, we are going to be talking with author Keith Amon, who wrote the Monsters Know What They're Doing blog and book series. As always, it is a huge help if you can rate and review this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast, and please help us keep growing. We've grown so much over the last few months, especially. It's been really awesome to see, and I'm hoping that that growth continues so that we're able to start attracting some sponsors to the show and get this uh, thing to just keep going the direction it has been going. It's It's been very awesome, and I'm very appreciative of all of you who have reached out to me and all of the listeners who continue to come back each week. I very much appreciate it. So thank you, and as always, we will see you next session.